There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today we continue our mini-series on maritime disasters. If you haven't heard any of these so far, do please check them out. We've covered so many extraordinary stories, including the shocking shipwreck of the mighty warship Vasa in the 17th century, that magnificent ship which sank on her maiden voyage. An episode on the SS Waratah, a huge passenger liner that simply vanished in 1909. One on the enormous Preussen, the only five-masted, fully-rigged merchant ship ever built, which sank in the English Channel in 1910. And an episode on the early submarine, the H.L. Hunley, which I think holds the record for the vessel being sunk the most Times. And there's so much more. I should add here that we are also working on a future series of episodes on the wreck of the Batavia, a Dutch vessel which ran aground off Western Australia in the summer of 1629, leading to one of the most appalling horror stories in all of history, let alone all of maritime history. I have in fact just returned from the wilds of Western Australia, where I saw a skeleton of one of those poor souls who was murdered in the aftermath of the Batavia wreck, a skeleton with a sword cut across the top of his skull as if someone was trying to cut open a boiled egg. And the more I find out about this story, the more shocking it becomes. But such grisliness must be set aside for another day, as today we are looking at something a little closer to home for us in the UK at least, the wreck of HMS Gloucester, a British warship lost in the spring of 1682 off the Norfolk coast. It's quite a story. Here is a ship with an impressive career that takes us from her end on that sandbar in Norfolk all the way to the British presence in the Caribbean during the Cromwellian Commonwealth, a key moment in the history of the world. And her later career was intricately linked with the troubled history of the Stuart monarchy. In fact, when she sank, one of those people on board was none other than James Stuart, the future James II who was on his way to Scotland. 
The wreck was recently discovered off Norfolk, and to tell us more, I spoke with Dr Ben Redding, a senior research associate on the Gloucester Project at the University of East Anglia. Together with Professor Claire Jowett, Ben is writing a cradle-to-grave history of this most historically and culturally significant 17th-century warship. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking with him. Here is the brilliant Ben. Ben, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. Thank you. Pleasure. Really glad to be here and to talk about the Gloucester. So let's let's talk about finding the ship first, if I may, because I suppose that's how all of this research into the history of the ship came about. Um, tell me about the discovery. So the Gloucester was discovered in 2007, so quite a while back now, by uh, two local Norfolk divers, Junior and Lincoln Barnwell, and their friend uh, James Tiny Little is known as Tiny, his nickname. And um, it really came from, how I understand it, somewhat of a passion project for them. Uh, They're local printers. And um, one day Lincoln was reading a book of local shipwrecks and he found this word cannon connected to the Gloucester. And he was just fascinated by the idea of possibly, you know, trying to uncover something like this. And so... um, Several years of searching, I believe it was four and a half thousand nautical miles later. They, wow. they they'd hit they'd they'd hit it. Yes, um, mm. yes. L- L- Lincoln tells this fasc- fascinating story of when he was diving down. His, his brother was an able at the time because he'd just recovered from an appendix operation, I believe. And uh, yes, L- Lincoln found the fantastic cannon so notice the cannon the bricks from a galley and so forth and uh he was should we say optimistic that they'd finally found what had become a passion project for them um yeah. with the, with the gloucester it, it wasn't it wasn't for another five years actually that it was finally confirmed as being the gloucester when they they, they found the bell which had the date 1681 on gloucester sunk in 1682 and they went from there to really kind of confirm it yeah, I think we should just emphasise there that they weren't looking in a nice piece of clear water off the coast of Bermuda. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> it's pretty cold and miserable where it is. I, I imagine they'd have preferred that if that was the case. As many would, yes, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's really their story. It's a, it's a tale of um, kind of endurance and perseverance be, because you're right, it's really difficult uh, conditions there um, and visibility can really be quite low at times they have to get up at ridiculously early times in the mornings to go off sailing um, yeah it, it, it's really 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 quite amazing what they've managed to achieve yeah something of a miracle um, so what what do we know about the ship going down um, wh- where was she off to what was going on so the Gloucester was uh had just recently been rebuilt actually and it's sinking is connected to the wider Stuart politics at the time it it was transporting james duke of york heir to the throne the brother of charles ii and it was transporting him from london to edinburgh and he was on his way to collect his pregnant wife uh, james had recently been living in edinburgh for three years and he'd been living there because he was a catholic and England was a Protestant nation and he'd essentially been encouraged to leave England for a while because there was a bill trying to be passed through Parliament to remove him from the line of succession for being Catholic. 
Uh, so he stayed in Scotland and uh, in March 1682 he was invited to return. It was seen that his enemies were defeated. So he returned on his own to England and then in May 1682 it was agreed that he was allowed to return to London permanently as he was off to, he was sailing off to Edinburgh in the Gloucester to collect his wife and settle his affairs there. And that's when the Gloucester struck the North North at Sandbanks and sunk. Where had he been? Where 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 had he been in this exile? Uh, he initially he was he went to the Hague in the very uh, late 1670s, but uh, from from there on in he 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 went off to Edinburgh, and he stayed actually in Holyrood House for for most of his time, and he was quite active there. He was Lord High Commissioner of the Scottish Parliament for a time, and so he was very heavily connected to the Scottish political system for the period that he was there. Hmm. Should we talk a little about James's maritime experience? Certainly can. Yeah, so the the important thing with James here is that he's, of course, a previous Lord High Admiral of England. When the restoration occurred in 1660, he became Lord High Admiral of England and he maintained that until 1673. Uh, In 1673, he was essentially forced to almost abdicate this uh, responsibility because it'd been revealed that he was a Catholic and there'd been a new law passed called the Testats in which James was uh, essentially told that if you do not denounce mass Catholic mass then you have to uh, you, you, ha- you, you have to abandon all public offices that you hold and that's what happened but he he had been, had significant experience in the Navy He'd uh, participated in many major battles during the Second and Third Anglo-Dutch Wars, participating in the Battle of Sol Bay, uh, which, is, which is perhaps the most prominent one which is known for, in which he had to actually swap ship three times because it was battered so many times during the battle. Um, so do we think that he knew what he was doing? In 1682? Yeah. Um <sighs> This is actually a, a big question open to debate, and actually I probably don't want to really commit to a firm answer here. What happened in May 1682 is that uh, the, as the Gloucester was sailing north, it approached the kind of treacherous north-north at Sandbanks, which are known for being particularly dynamic, and uh, sailors usually didn't really want to travel through them. They'd rather kind of hug the coast and uh, kind of a, try to avoid them altogether, or perhaps completely avoid them by sailing way out to sea. Uh, there was an argument that took place on board the ship as, as to whether the Gloucester should go through these sandbanks or take a different route. And James asserted his own authority and he basically instructed that they were going to go through his course, which is referred to as kind of the middle, middling ground, which although it doesn't, didn't necessarily strictly mean sailing directly through the particular sandbanks it did, he did want to take the shortest route probably possible and the safest because he wanted to get to Edinburgh quickly, because he wanted to settle his affairs there and return to London in glory, because he'd finally been allowed to return. It, in many respects, 1682 is kind of James's restoration in itself. He'd be acknowledged as the heir to the throne. It was a point of celebration for him, and he certainly was mm. partying on the Gloucester. It's interesting. How do we know about this decision? It sounds like someone's trying to blame him. <laughs> I wonder why. Well, there was actually several courts martials that were conducted ah. immediately after. Uh, and of course, it was important that the future heir to the throne did not take the blame, even if perhaps there may be some fingers pointing at him. And so a captain of a company yacht, Christopher Gunman, was blamed. And also the ship's pilot was blamed. Both were imprisoned, although albeit in one case for a very 
limited short amount of time. Um, so there, there are certainly accounts of this, both from the courts marshals and through kind of testimonies immediately after. Uh, did it go down in uh, plain weather, um, good weather, or was it a storm? Tell us about the actual sinking. The evening before, reports are that it was actually rather foggy to the extent that some of the ships that the Gloucester was sailing with, it was part of a small fleet and the Gloucester, the Gloucester being the largest, some of those ships actually kind of uh, became disconnected from the rest of the fleet because they couldn't see one another. Um, so it was certainly foggy and then the actual morning in which it struck on the 6th of May, it was very choppy seas uh, and some of the rowboats that attempted to save some of the individuals on board and no, uh, a recorder is actually flipping over in these choppy seas. So, um, yeah, they certainly weren't the best, shall we say. Mm. Was there much loss of life? Uh, huge. We don't really know the exact numbers, as unfortunately no muster list survives, but it's estimated between 120 and perhaps 250 people lost their lives, drowned in this event. The Gloucester was packed, uh, certainly had way over 300 people on board at the time, uh, perhaps as much as 400 real tragedy so um let's go back in history a bit and look at the the earlier uh history of the gloucester itself tell me about the western design what was that great so uh this is a a really important point i believe in the gloucester's career and in fact it's not just an important point it was actually one of its first notable that one of the first notable events for the gloucester because the gloucester was launched in march 1654 it was built in a private dockyard at Limehouse in the Northern Thames. And um, it essentially, when it was launched, it was in- originally intended to participate in a war, the first Anglo-Dutch mm-hmm. war. But its launch coincided with the actual end of that war. And so it wasn't initially used. And the Navy had recently just been hugely expanded on an unprecedented scale. And um, there was a big question of what should we do with all these new ships we just built now that the war's ended. And... Cromwell and Parliament devised this scheme, which is now known as the Western Design, which uh, and it was it's called the Western Design because everyone, when they were preparing to sail, knew that they were heading off to the Americas. They're heading off to the West, but the specific target for attack was left unknown. It was a secret, so that no one could leak it, and so they just referred to it as the Western Design. Um, and so the Gloucester's first captain was Benjamin Blake, who was actually the brother of General C. Robert Blake, who's kind of known as the 17th century Nelson. And uh, in December 1654, on actually on Christmas Day itself, the Gloucester set sail from Portsmouth along with a fleet of, I believe, 38 of the vessels. And it sails over to the Caribbean and uh, at the end of January reaches Barbados. Uh, even at that state, they truly don't know where exactly they're going to attack. They just know that the, this scheme is probably designed to expand some sort of Cromwellian empire. Uh, they spend almost three months at Barbados gathering further soldiers and so forth. And then it, at the end of March to early April, they leave Barbados and they head to Hispanola, which is today the Dominican Republic. And uh, that is revealed to be their target. This huge island they're going to attack, particularly the main city there, Santo Domingo. And the idea is they're going to sack Santo Domingo, capture Hispanola for themselves and make, and make this huge island part of, uh, the, of the kind of Commonwealth. It doesn't happen. It's very, very unsuccessful. Despite this being probably the most ambitious naval scheme 
in history to this date mm. um they 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 land at hispanolia and it j- just fails they uh they're completely underprepared they they don't have the vittles to survive uh the tropical climate really has an effect on them with the heat and uh dis- with disease spreading and consequently it's quickly abandoned it's abandoned within the same month of april and instead they decide that uh J- that Jamaica is going to be attacked as a kind of almost consolation prize, which is far more easily achieved, and it's captured in May 1655. I have a theory about um, the British Empire being shaped more by failure than success, and I think this is one of the finest examples of it. Um, you know, the, the whole history of the British Empire um, and, and the importance of Jamaica all being caused by the failure of uh, the attack on Hispaniola. Um, fascinating stuff. Um what else do we know about how um, did the Gloucester stay there very long afterwards? Yeah, so what's really important about the Gloucester here is usually when we consider the Western design, it's usually perceived as ending immediately after Jamaica is captured. So uh, when, when Jamaica is captured in May, most of the fleet only remains there until June, and the Admiral of the fleet William Penn and the uh, the General of the Army Robert Venables both leave. They both return to to England. The Gloucester is part of a far smaller squadron that remains there, largely to defend Jamaica. But there's also some ambiguity r- around what else it should be doing. Should it actually be, be attempting to further expand English holdings in the Caribbean and also in South America as well, as it turns out? Um, and yes, it, it remains there for quite a while. It, it is So when um, Gloucester set sail from Portsmouth in December 1654. It actually remains at sea in the Americas all the way until October 1656, which is the date, the, the month in which it returns to England. So almost two full years it's at sea there in an environment that it's perhaps not best suited to. And uh, also perhaps it really isn't intended to, to be there for that long especially of a vessel of the size that the Gloucester is it's a third rate frigate it's uh, around 750 tons uh, can can hold upwards of 300 men uh, it's it's under around 54 heavy guns at this time it's not really the most suited for this environment uh, it's probably better to have smaller craft there at the time especially mm. considering that they're sailing to islands where they don't really know kind of the depths of the waters there. It's very easy to run your ship aground in these, in these waters. Yeah, and there's no significant... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Like an infrastructure. Absolutely. I mean, if you, if you get in trouble, <laughs> there's nowhere to go. Absolutely, none at all. It's um, Barbados has been in English hands for a few years. Um, Jamaica has nothing. It's uh, it, it, it's really from a European perspective when we talk about fortification and so forth. It's rather under underdeveloped. They they haven't done a huge amount with it, which is why England uh, England make it such an easily feat to capture it from the Spanish in really the space of a few days. Um, and simply put, there are no large harbours to uh, that have had the kind of human infrastructure built to accommodate for these ships. Yeah, no slips or dockyards or or, or any any of the the infrastructure. I think this early period of um, uh, British presence in the Caribbean is fascinating to work out how how they actually did it. I'm not sure anyone's really thought about it. Well, truth is, as is reflected in the Gloucester's kind of story, what happens there, it's, um, I think it's a real battle against the elements. It might mm. seem as a really significant kind of victory that was achieved, although Jamaica at the time is seen as actually a pretty poor kind of achievement. It's, it's seen as actually a failure. Yeah, it, clearly in time, um, it's actually quite a pivotal part of the empire that develops. Um but really, the Gloucester has a really hard time there. It's um, it, it's really quickly apparent that the navy just is not equipped to operate on this size, this scale, and at this distance away from its mainland. Uh, Vittling is really poor. That there is such a huge amount of sickness that just wipes out large parts of the crews. Um, and not to mention, there's huge arguments over the leadership of the campaign itself when they're over there. There's even an event in which the Gloucester's captain almost attempts to overthrow the leading admiral who remains there once Penn departs in June 1655. Mm. It's the lack of sails and, and, and spare rope <laughs> and kind of timber for shipbuilding that horrifies me. As you're, you're, you're over there on a, on a vessel and no doubt it would need uh, a bit of pe- patching up and a bit of repair. And yet they, they still manage to do it. It really, I think, emphasises the ability of sailors to um, mend their vessels using everything that they had to hand rather than having to rely on enormous amounts of spare parts. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you've got to also kind of think that... Uh, 
that, that in many respects that these people are doing things that they're not usually expected to do in England. Uh, you, you would usually have the kind of wooden planks and timbers and so forth available for you in the dockyards so that in England so that there are, uh, so that you could just kind of actually build them the carpenters and the shipwrights themselves. Not the case, of course, over there, where they're going to have to be cutting the trees down themselves and you know finding suitable timbers. It's it's actually quite a large additional piece of labour in order to to achieve that, and actually probably requires knowledge that they may not have had. In the summer of 1656, the uh, Gloucester Springs are leak, uh, and it's quite a sizable one. It's uh, it's every hour, it's I believe it's between two and four foot of water is leaking into its hold. You know, what do you do when you're over there to patch that? You're going to have to somehow haul this ship onto the shoreline. You're going to have to patch it up. It's really quite challenging to achieve. And as you can imagine, it also causes quite a lot of poor morale, shall we say, when these ships are, in many respects, often on their last legs and there aren't really the resources and people there to fix them. But as you mentioned, clearly they do manage to. I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it, that one half of a career is over in the Caribbean where there's so little infrastructure, but then the other half of it is on the east coast of the UK, where you've got Chatham Dockyard, among other things. You have the the, the most impressive infrastructure of um, you know the British naval history at the time. Mm. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, the Gloucester's career is really quite sizable. Uh, the shipwreck, of course, is a really momentous event that happens, especially because of who it has on board. But uh, it has such a long career, and most of it is in kind of the English shoreline, and particularly around, as you say, Chatham and those big kind of yards. It, it's often actually in, recalled in, in, in dock in Woolwich and Deptford as well undergoing repairs during its long career when a ship a ship has nearly a 30 year career it's obviously clear that they need various different repairs and and larger kind of rebuilds done to them during these time and that certainly happens with the Gloucester and it needs that infrastructure in England to do so yeah. And she fights during the Anglo-Dutch Wars, doesn't she? Yeah, absolutely. Re- really quite uh, imp- important to it as well. It's, re- it's recorded as sinking several vessels and capturing many Dutch prizes. It's, as I mentioned, it's part of the Battle of Sol Bay. It's part of the Battles of Lowestoft. Um, it's part of the Battle of Tetzel. So kind of the, to me, kind of these three really big pivotal battles of the Anglo-Dutch Wars, it's there for. Uh, the Battle of St. James's Day as well and um, the Four Days Battle. It's there for all these huge battles, which are also battles that are really quite important for the 17th century because this is when the Navy is seen as kind of um, overtaking, I guess, the the army, land-based warfare, as a tool in its own right. Before that, navies are perceived as almost an auxiliary to armies. The Anglo-Dutch wars changed this. The, the Anglo-Dutch wars clearly make a statement that wars can be fought almost purely at sea. Hmm. The scale of it all is remarkable. You said that she was part of, I think it was 38 vessels going to the Caribbean. And then if you look at the battles in the Anglo-Dutch wars themselves, they're, they're phenomenally big compared to what happens later. Huge, and a lot of this is really dependent on the Cromwellian regime, what they achieve. Before Oliver Cromwell and the parliamentarian regime, uh, the Navy rarely has more than a kind of 30 or 40, what we call kind of standing Royal Naval ships at its disposal. But 
under Cromwell, it expands exponentially. It has more than 100 vessel warships available. They build so many ships. When the Gloucester is built in 1654, it's part of a built as a much larger program of 10 different warships being constructed at the same time and they, they can't be built in the rural dockyards because there's too many ships being built there at the same time and so they have to be kind of um outsourced to private dockyards instead the Cromwellian regime is so important actually to the nation's naval history because of the leaps it makes in developing in the development of naval infrastructure and of the wider naval force so now this wreck's been discovered, uh, how do you deal with that? What are the goals of the archaeologists and how are you gonna, going to address this question of conservation? So I, I guess there's kind of a short, medium and long term plan with these things as they're, they're, they generally are. Uh, the immediate kind of uh, short term plan is that there's going to be a major international exhibition that's being held at Norwich Castle Museum and Art Gallery and it's going to open the 25th of February uh, 2023. It's titled The Last Voyage of the Gloucester Norfolk's Royal Shipwreck 1682 and it's going to be on there all the way until September 2023 um, unfortunately one of the creators alongside Professor Claire Jarrett of, U- of the University of Anglia and um, Ruth Battersby Took and Francesca Vanker from Norfolk Museum Services and they are going to we are going to be able to for the first time display many of the fantastic artefacts that have been rescued to date um, it only surface archaeology has been conducted so far which essentially means that uh, artifacts that expose the elements that are, uh, c- could be eroded that could be um, washed away with the tide uh, it's only these artifacts that have been rescued in order, to, in order to kind of preserve our heritage and it's these artifacts that we're going to display and uh, it includes over 149 wine bottles um, mm. they, they were having a very good time in 1682 on, on their way <laughs> um, um, and what's fascinating here for me is that uh, almost 30 of them still have liquid contents in. They still have wine. And uh, so we can find out exactly what types of wine hopefully they were drinking in the, in the future. Um, and all these fantastic artefacts are going to be in conversation with international and national loans to tell the story of the Gloucester, not just in terms of its wreck, but also in terms of it's present and future in, in, in terms of what Julian Lincoln Barnwell have managed to achieve in terms of what's hopefully set up in the future. And that is that a trust is in development, a charitable trust in development, and it's going to be chaired by General Lord Richard Dannett. And that will hopefully kind of conserve the future there, Gloucester, whether that is in terms of a kind of site management plan, a... Um, for partial excavation simply i don't know this is stuff that it needs to be determined through further archaeological research but certainly it'd be fantastic if kind of great yarmouth be- could become some sort of home for many of these artifacts uh, because it's a really fantastic story and of course it's extremely rare to have a royal passenger on board a warship that that sinks so uh what what i love about the gloucester is that uh its shipwreck of course has that important political connection 
but it also has the significance of the ship itself. The ship has such a long and interesting history. And we are now, um, myself and Professor Claire Jowett, we are writing a cradle-to-grave history of the Gloucester. And uh, we're very fortunate to be funded by the Leverhulme Trust to do this. Hmm. Where, where is that taking you and your research? <laughs> well, as you've seen from today with the Western design all over the world, it's, <laughs> it's um, yeah, we're, we're, we're truly very lucky because the Gloucester had such a long career and an interesting career. It certainly opened up many fascinating doors, both to national, international and private archives to um to to uncover Gloucester's story. And of course, we're lucky enough to be able to work with some of the artefacts that have been rescued to add additional information that previously just isn't in the records. The records don't state that uh, James and his party were drinking very heavily at the time, as as shown by the wine bottles. Uh, That that might in itself actually contribute to our understanding of why the wreck happened. With so many wine bottles discovered, would that have resulted in many people having, shall we say, a poorly head in the morning of the Gloucester strike in the sandbanks? And how did that impact the actual attempts to evacuate the ship? What about um, written evidence? I mean, you've got a lot of this, this wonderfully preserved, um, these wonderfully preserved artefacts. What about uh, maybe ship plans or uh, written material relating to her career? Yes, so there are... Um there's a very large amount of material, fortunately, for this, especially during the late later period. The Gloucester's wreck itself is widely reported uh, in newspapers, in, of course, personal correspondence, and also in various other means. My colleague Claire Jarrett is currently looking into how it's represented in kind of drama and literature as well. So there is a huge amount of material linking, connecting to the wreck. Uh, when it comes to its wider career, I guess it really depends on the period we're addressing. Uh, unfortunately, for the kind of 1650s, for the Commonwealth period, uh, Many of the records are have kind of been lost over time, it would appear, and that's probably because Cromwell wasn't particularly popular where when of course the restoration occurred, and no one was particularly eager to remember some of this dark time, and some of these records do seem to have been lost as a result of it. But with that kind of doom and gloom approach, uh, I will nevertheless say that actually there's a huge kind of plethora of material that we have found, nevertheless, and we're very excited that to eventually share the Gloucester's full story, full career with, with, with the public um, because it's a fascinating one. Yeah, it is. Thank you very much indeed for sharing it with us today, Ben. A pleasure. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening. Now, please don't leave your interaction with our fabulous podcast here. There is so much more you can do. Firstly, check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast on YouTube, where you will find a library of the most extraordinarily innovative videos showcasing the maritime past in entirely new ways. If you are interested in maritime disasters, who could ever forget our clever use of 3D animation techniques to bring the Titanic back to life with drawings taken from her original lines, or our exploration of hulks lying in the mud in the beautiful Dart River estuary in Devon.
This podcast comes from both the Lloyds Register Foundation and the Society for Nautical Research. So please check out what both of those institutions are up to. The SNR you can find at snr.org.uk where you can join up and please do so. Every new member makes a difference. It's a wonderful chance to make friends and learn about our maritime past. And you can find the History and Education Centre of the Lloyds Register Foundation at hec.lrfoundation.com foundation.org.uk and be sure to check out their wonderful new project filming the world's best ship models with the latest camera technology called maritime innovation in miniature just google it When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.